is to get through the entirety of the chapter of this evening, but I have a couple of good stopping places. If we don't get there, I won't take us over, but I am here next week, and so I'll pick up wherever we leave off, or if it's right at chapter 9, I'll get as far as I can through there. Now, um, Revelation, just for some uh, background to bring us up to speed. Many of you are familiar with this book and then uh, your own personal study of it, but if you didn't know, this portion that we're at, about chapter 8, is still the front end, kind of, of the third division of the book. Uh, Revelation has its own divinely inspired outline that was laid out in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus says to John, who's penning this, he tells him to write the things which you have seen, or thou hast seen. That is chapter 1, the vision John received of Jesus Christ, is the things he has seen. He's also told then to write the things which are which turns out to be chapters 2 and 3. Those are seven churches and their instructive letters from Jesus Christ. And then he instructs John to write the things which shall take place after these things. After what things was he talking about? Chapters 2 and 3, the church. After these things, metatalta is the Greek phrase for that. It's used several times in this book. And so from chapter 4 through the rest of Revelation, that is all post-church as we understand it. All right, chapters 4 and 5 are kind of an introduction to this final division of, this, uh, of the book of Revelation. Many people consider this the main, the main portion in their minds of the, of the book. And if you're a, a student of biblical prophecy, you'll recognize um, chapter 6 through 19 is, is basically it's an expansion of what is called or known as the 70th week of Daniel. Is anybody familiar with that? Good. There's a, a profound, perhaps one of the most profound prophecies in all of Scripture is the 70th week of Daniel and, and, and what it includes. So we've talked about it in the past, but just to get things in perspective in chapters 4 and 5, we have John there before the throne of God, and he finds Jesus taking the seven-sealed scroll, as it were. And he opens six of those seven seals in chapter 6. That's what we've reviewed. And uh, the events ushered forward, forth from those, uh, from those seals is what's contained in chapter 6. Chapter 7 is what's called one of the parenthetical type of chapters. It's almost as if it's in parentheses. We noticed as you would study this book of Revelation, it deals with these groups of seven. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And there's always six of these seven, and then a break or a change of subject. And um, these parenthetical passages, as they're referred to, are sort of a, um, editorial, or so to speak. It's just where it, the, the subject is, uh, is dealt with on the issue, but it's not necessarily chronological or contiguous, tied to the, the sequence of events here. So we have six seals opened chapter 6. Six of the seven seals. And really what we've seen so far with the war and the famine, it's been unimaginable. Very unsettling. But chapter 7 drops all of that for a while and talks about the sealing of the 144,000, the results of their ministry. Pastor Conrad has taken through that, taken us through that the past couple of weeks. And that chapter ends in this threefold crescendo of praise. And then the first thing that greets us as we get to chapter 8 is a strange verse. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. Now, um, when you study Re Revelation, and you would go to listen to sermons or commentaries on this, on this chapter, there's usually a joke or, or some kind of wise crack here about, you know, we know who won't be in heaven, right? Because we know somebody who can't shut up for a half hour, that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, the truth of the matter here is this strange verse. I think it represents something more serious. And there's various opinions on, on what the, the time this half hour represents of silence in heaven. It might be just a reverent response to judgment coming forth, like in our courtrooms when a judge takes his seat, or it could be um, just a time of, of, of somber reflection um, after what's just came out of those six seals. 
There's also uh, the idea that after this culmination of worship that's brought to an end in chapter 7, it's just a moment to catch your breath after that. It it might be any or, or a combination of these things. But more so, as you would imagine the scene in context with the details that we have from the, from the previous chapters, these details kind of make it overwhelming to consider this. Because you think about it, if you've pondered on this, it may be the first time since creation that there was silence in heaven. And it's not clear what the response or the posture of those people or the beings in heaven, what it was like during the time of the crucifixion. We don't, we don't know that. But we do read in chapter 4 of Revelation, it talks about the cherubim that surrounded the throne of God. And as they were there, they worshipped him. They were giving him praise. It says that they ceased not day and night to praise him. Yet all of a sudden, they are silenced now. And if you remember, again, in chapter 5, there's elders and there's creatures introduced. They are singing this song, the song of the redeemed. They are now silenced. And also in chapter 5, we, they, we read of a, an innumerable company of angels. There's hundreds upon hundreds of millions. There are 10,000 times 10,000. And they are praising, they are worshiping, but they're also silenced now. So there's no chapter break when John wrote, originally wrote the text. All of this flowed together, but we have the chapter break here, and it kind of gives us a vantage point because there's been a lot of things building up in chapter 6 and 7. Then all of a sudden... It's kind of brought to this deafening stillness for a while. And uh, I imagine the effect it has on John may be, like I said, overwhelming, fearful, or awe-inspiring. If, if you imagine the throne of God with millions upon billions or trillions of, of faces completely silent as they observe, and the saints and angels, the cherubim, the elders... Every there, everyone there who was previously worshiping is now quiet. And I think there's... A lot, of, a lot of reasons for this, but you consider this seventh seal, one of the reasons maybe for the silence is because once this seal is opened, it is kind of the, the point of no return, so to speak, the, because out of it will flow the sound of seven trumpets and then seven bowls of wrath, which will end this age as we know it, and then eventually the Lord will introduce a new age. And finally, the destructions of heavens and earth and and the creation of a new age. So as we study the the book of Revelation and and we observe and read the rest of these events roll out, all of that right here now is pivotal. It kind of hinges upon this seventh seal and what's about to happen next. And so we think about the intent and the heart of the Lord in Scripture. I think it's made objectively clear as it pertains to the world because the Bible says that God, he gave his only perfect, blameless son because he loved this world so much. That was his expression of it. So that out of the world, those who would come to believe upon him, repent of their sin, they, they inherit eternal life. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit. They're justified as righteous before an almighty God. That is the heart of the Lord. Amen. Well, we get frustrated in what we see in this world with a lot of corruption, injustice, things that are wicked and cruel and twisted, and we get angry, and it's, it's difficult not to be frustrated and, and just want to see everything done away with and, 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 and cry, how long, O oh Lord? So that may be difficult or, or, or may be challenging for you to, to remember And recognize how much the Lord, how much God loves this world. And that's why, even as a born-again believer, even if you're saved, we need the gospel. The good news is not just for lost people who need to receive Christ in the world, right? Born-again believers need the gospel every day to understand and remember that we we are saved by grace. That's unmerited favor. We don't deserve to commune with God. We don't deserve to sup with Him, to, to, to receive His forgiveness, His mercies. We don't, we don't deserve His sacrifice. And even John says in his epistle, we love Him because He first loved us. Some people in the world, in, in the church even, have this misconception of God as this, 
Thou shall not power broker in the sky who judges with lightning and rains. The, the, that's a misunderstanding uh, of the heartthrob and, and the divine love that the Lord has for this world. For those of you who have children and are parents here, if you knew your, parent, your, your children that you would witness their destruction in the next day or week or year, however long, that would overwhelm you. That sense of grief and sorrow, you would be broken by that. And the Bible clearly expresses the Lord's love for humanity, for the world, is greater than the love we even have for our own children. And uh, it's not hard to imagine that if, if you're ready and willing. I know I'm not ready and willing to give my baby up for the world. And uh, so uh, all that considered, the, the key to this silence, I think, in the passage is the posture of God himself, maybe. Because in this scene, up to this point, all the worship and the praise and the glory that's been brought to him around the throne, all those things have been focused on the Lamb of God itself, himself. The cherubim, seraphim, elders, saints, angels, what was flowing out of them was praise, worship, song, casting their crowns. And now, for some reason, they see something in God that causes them to stop. And I believe the heartbreak of a father is what's evident that they're seeing. And perhaps maybe in this time, it feels that their, their worship is inappropriate. And as the saints and angels and cherubim, they're viewing God with the opening of this seventh seal, and they view their seeing his heartbreak. It brings a solemn moment and a silence in heaven. You imagine keeping quiet for that long. Five minutes is hard, especially if children but 10, 15 with that many beings, millions upon billions and trillions, viewing God, observing Him quietly, it must seem like an eternity. So this is most of the application I have for the lesson up front. What I pray for us, church, is that we're not only reminded by this scripture, by God's response of, of His love for the world, but we're burdened by it. And we're burdened to see as many people as possible in the world that would come to Him. Paul said in his letter to Timothy, God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In Ezekiel 33, God said, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, he said. So I think of God now as we come to the point in, in his posture of, of seeing this seventh seal about to open and everything that will roll out from that. He's known what's about to happen since the day of creation. And I think that at this moment, in this half hour, he's brooding over it, and heaven is silenced. Now, we'll discover as we go through this text tonight, uh, chapter 8 is going to be the, uh, uh, the opening of what are called the trumpet judgments because the seventh seal turns out to have seven angels with seven trumpets. And each time one of them blows a trumpet, it brings forth some kind of cataclysmic judgment. And these judgments, they seem to escalate as they go. So in chapter 8, we have four of these trumpet judgments. Then in chapter 9, we have three more, making seven. So the first four have certain characteristics, and we'll explore those in a moment as we get into the text. Um, but the last three, just so you know, if you want to prepare, or you may already be familiar, uh, the last three are quite at variance. They're very different. Um, they're actually very demonic, and it's spooky stuff. So that's one of the reasons there's perhaps a chapter break between 8 and 9, because the 5th, 6th, and 7th trumpet are... Are different, But one of the things I want to share with you as we go into the text, this should only take, a f I haven't tamed it, but it should only take a few moments. This is a, a viewpoint um, that I want to share with you. It's just a viewpoint. Um, it may not have any relevance at all, um, but you also may already have knowledge of it, and it could be enlightening or, or edifying for your own study and your own revelation. And uh, so it's the kind of thing that you could explore on your own in the text to, to, to reach your own conclusions. And that is the suggestion that the book of Joshua in the Old Testament seems to frame or form what is uh, an anticipatory model 
of the book of Revelation. Has anybody ever heard of that? Wow, okay, good. Uh, well, hopefully you learned something new tonight. Um, when you study the book of Joshua, the first thing that'll hit you probably is the name of the book, which is Yeshua. Yeshua. Um, that is Joshua in the Hebrew and Jesus in the Greek. So you have a, a book here from the Old Testament that, in a sense, is carrying the same name as Jesus. In fact, this book it deals with uh, this military leader who leads God's people in the dispossession of the land from the usurpers. In other words, Joshua leads the conquest of Canaan uh, to dispossess the, the land on behalf of God's people, the Jews, the Israelites. So the book of Revelation, what we're going to find is that Jesus is doing the same thing. It's just you move the decimal point over. He's, moved, he's dispossessing the planet planet Earth from the prince of this world. Who is the prince of this world? Satan. Satan, very good. So as you would study the book of Joshua, there's some things that are obvious and then not so obvious. And the first is that this took place in the land of Canaan, which originally had ten tribes, uh, but three were dealt with, so they were left with seven. And that's interesting because I mentioned if you, if you are a student of prophecy in the Bible, and I, I know there are, some here, uh, and you study the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, you know that there is a, a beast with seven heads and ten horns. And that is because there was originally ten nations that are or will be put down by the Antichrist. And so that pattern is suggestive there. And as it pertains to the dates, if anybody has studied significant dates in Scripture, you may be somewhat familiar with these. Joshua, when they crossed the River Jordan, that happened on the 10th of Nisan, and then they or, excuse me, circumcised the people on the 14th of Nisan. And that is significance because, again, in your Bible, these dates are relevant. The 10th of Nisan is, the date, is also the date of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as the, the Lamb of God rode into uh, Jerusalem. On the very day that Gabriel, the angel, prophesied he would to Daniel some 500 plus years before that. That is part of the 70-week prophecy. Very profound. Now, um, this crucif the crucifixion also takes place on the 14th of Nisan. And so you get the impression that, nothing else, God seems to orchestrate his calendar very precisely. If you didn't know this about these dates, the flood of Noah ended on the 17th of Nisan, that's also the date that Jesus was resurrected. So God began his new beginning with Noah on the same date as his new beginning in Jesus Christ in anticipation. So the things, these are all things, unique, uh, interesting parallels from the calendar perspective. You, again, since nothing else, um, there's at least an element of design here. Now, we're going through the study of Revelation in our college and career young adult class, and the main premise of our study, our approach there, is that these 66 books, which we call the Bible, are made up or penned by 40 different authors over thousands of years with no internal conflicts. They are, it makes up an integrated messaging system, and so every number, every detail, and every syllable is there by supernatural design. And uh, so that's, that's, our, that's our unique approach, and, and what you'll find is I have many Old Testament references, and that is through the technique of using a concordance to track down this language, these phrases, these words, and locate it where else it occurs in Scripture, and you'll find a lot of truth in, in just that scavenger hunt, um, and it's now very easy with web-based tools, and, um, and so I would encourage you to consider that in your study, using a concordance, but... One of the questions that you can ask yourself as we're exploring this whole Joshua detour up front is who really fought the battle of Jericho? <laughs> All right. Well, let's look at chapter 5, and this should only take a minute because, strangely enough, this might have an impact on our study. Chapter 5 of Joshua. Uh, we're going to look at just a few verses picking up in 13. At this point, that they've crossed over the River Jordan. And they've made a base in Gilgal. They're facing seven tribes. 
The strongest of these seven tribes is the Amorites, and the capital of the Amorites was Jericho. So that's where we are. Joshua here is apparently on sentry duty. And uh, again, chapter 5, verse 13 says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or our adversaries? So Joshua encounters this guy with a sword drawn, and he challenges him like a soldier. And you get the impression he's not messing around here. So in verse 14, this being holding the sword responds to Joshua. He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him. And said, what does my Lord say to his servant? So we have a guy here that's kind of special in some way, in many ways. This kind of thing, this event, occurs many times in the Bible. We'll read about John later in Revelation. Chapter 19, he comes to a being, which ends up, I believe, being an angel. And he mistakenly starts to worship him. And what does the angel tell him? Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. Don't worship me. Daniel encounters others in, in, in uh, similar situations of the scripture. And so in the Bible, with one exception, angels um, do not allow themselves to be worshipped. All right. One angel sought worship, and he ended up getting himself in a lot of trouble. Right? Isaiah 14 tells us about the career and the origin of Lucifer, which is good background for Revelation. But this guy in Joshua, he not only permits the worship, he commands it. In verse 15, it said, The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So this person is, in fact, using the same phrase that Joshua was probably familiar with, because 40 years earlier, Moses heard the burning bush told him to do the same thing, to take off his sandals. So this person is in effect claiming to be that voice of the burning bush. He calls himself the captain of the Lord's army, and that's kind of misleading to our ears because we think of captain as a, as a field-grade officer. But the, the word, the term here is actually used uh, to describe a, more of a preeminence. He is number one. He's over everything. So obviously this is none other than Jesus Christ. So simply by the fact that he's ordering himself to be worshipped and for many other reasons. But now that we have that clarified, that starts to give us some attention to this battle of Jericho and Joshua. Because the real leader is Jesus Christ, the captain of the Lord's army. And that fact is kind of interesting because as you study the battle plans of the battle of Jericho, you'll notice some strange things. You'll notice that most of the laws of the Torah were ignored. Uh, for instance, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't supposed to go to war, but it leads the parade when they march. The Levites were exempt from military duty in Numbers 1, 2, and 3. But here in Jericho, they lead the procession. And then furthermore, the Torah said that they were to work on six days and then rest on the seventh, right? Well, in this case, on the seventh day, what did they do? They did seven times as much. Yeah. So um, that's interesting. Now, before all this... Joshua sent two guys in. Um, we call them spies, right? But if you think about these two spies, what kind of intel or intelligence plan did they bring back to impact? Or rather, what did they accomplish while they were out? If you know the story, they got Rahab saved, right? So in a manner of speaking, I would suggest that we not maybe call them spies, but we could consider them witnesses, maybe, perhaps. So if you consider that, in Joshua, he's sending in two witnesses in advance. And that, I don't know about you, kind of sounds like Revelation chapter 11, if you're familiar. We haven't got there yet, but that's a prominent feature in the proceedings that we'll discover. There's something else about this Joshua concept that catches my attention and I want to bring up to you. Because obviously the sevens in Revelation are suggestive of the sevens in Joshua. Everybody can kind of see that parallel, right? 
That's most of the, the, the parallels. I, I'll let, the, um, let you chase down the rest of the goods on your own. But a couple more things here. Uh, because unless you're looking for it or unless you're attuned to this, you, you may not catch this detail. During the seven days, they, they marched around Jericho, but um, it seems once a day they, they did so as they were marching, it was done in silence. Because for six days they marched, on the seventh day they marched seven times. It wasn't until the seventh time that they blew the trumpets and shouted, and if you know the story, that's when the walls came down. So what's fascinating to me is this precedent silence. And in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, before introducing the seven trumpets, there's this silence in heaven for about a half hour. So as you explore this hypothesis that maybe, perhaps, Joshua in the Old Testament is somehow anticipatory of the book of Revelation, it's just a suggestion. One last thing, you'll notice that after Jericho, the tribes that remained, where they were frightened and scared, they ran off and aligned themselves with the leader um, who called himself Adonai Zedek. And the name of that means Lord of Righteousness. So this guy gets ultimately defeated with hail from heaven at uh, Beth Horon, that battle. And when he gets defeated, the kings, it says, they hid themselves in caves, which kind of sounds familiar if you recall from Revelation chapter 6. So, again, I hope this is somehow complimentary or encouraging to your study or your existing understanding. It's just a suggestion that you would consider a possibility. But keep your eyes tuned for possible similarities in the structure and the language if you were going to look at Joshua and Revelation side by side. I think there's evidence of common design, and that's something I've been wanting to share for a long time, as many times as I've taught, but it just seemed most appropriate here. I hope that encourages you. Now let's go ahead and chop, uh, jump back into chapter 8. We've covered verse 1. We're making great progress. So, uh, um, getting into the seven trumpet judgments now. So, I want to mention just uh, uh, for background so we have a good solid overview of what's going to happen because there is a, uh, like, uh, there's actually a logarithmic sequence here. And so um, there are seven seals, which we talked about in chapter 6. The seventh seal consists of seven trumpets. The, seven, the seventh trumpet will consist of seven bowls of wrath poured out. That's not until chapter 15, but... One of the things that's not obvious is that this is a sequence, all of these events. And some people, when they study, and, and, and when you would go about your study in this, you'll find a lot of thought and reasoning that seems to uh, fall under the idea that these events are, are, are overlaid or parallel in some way. And as you read that, I could understand why some people would think that. Uh, but if you do an exegesis on the text and look at the, uh, at the language clearly, carefully, you, you can see that it is intended to be a sequence, a particular order. So, but in that case, uh, there's the structure. So we're in the, um, again, the seventh seal, which now is going to consist of the seven trumpets. All right, verse 2, John said, And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. All right, we covered enough to, to, to understand this, um, so not much comment necessary, but I did just want to make a, um, a passing um, comment just so we don't mix, uh, mix things up here or mix up metaphors. Uh, there's lots of trumpets in Scripture, so I don't want anyone to be confused with the trumpet judgments from Revelation and uh, with trumpets in general from Scripture. You have trumpets prophetically, trumpets that are in the, uh, the, uh, the temple. Those are the silver trumpets. And then the shofar, those are the trumpets from, uh, that sounded at the, the Feast of Trumpets. So the one that people will confuse this with is the trump or the trumpet of God. And that only occurs twice in Scripture. Once in Exodus at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And then the other time Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he deals with the last trumpet of God. So many people assume that this seventh trumpet in, in Revelation is equivalent to that, but I just want to caution you. 
uh, from that mix-up. Um, these seven trumpet judgments on the earth, these are not the, the final trumpets that we're going to see anyway, just so you know. Uh, because after Jesus comes back, he establishes his, his kingdom, there's going to be trumpets in the millennial temple as well. And the, that goes on for at least a thousand years that we know. So don't jump to the conclusion. Um, again, I just want to alert you to that possible mix-up. Verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So we're probably familiar with this censer and the, and the prayers of the saints, the golden altar. Um, it speaks, at least idiomatically, of frankincense. That was a, a priestly duty in the Old Testament, and I think it's been um, talked about enough to realize that this um, is an idiom of um, incense, and the, the golden altar is idiomatic of the prayers of the saints. So all throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament, you find that expression and, and the use of that language. We're going to see this amplified in the next verse here in just a moment, but I wanted to talk about this altar that it says. The angel stood at the altar. Um, I've mentioned this in, in some of the other lessons I've had the privilege of take, um, taking us through in Revelation. One of the other studies that is, is not too, too much information but would be very complementary to your understanding is uh, to examine the architecture of the tabernacle, which, of course, is amplified in the architecture of the temple. We talked about that. The temple has a few things that the tabernacle does not, and it turns out those... those Details are very instructive. But the main thing here is that this altar in verse 3 and in chapter 11, we're going to see the Ark of the Covenant. Um, these items here are the original real ones. I just want to make sure we understand that. But what I mean by that is the ones that are described to Moses that, that he was shown in heaven and uh, that he built um, are replicas in the Torah. It is amplified by the writer in Hebrews, chapters 8, 9, and 10, when he explains that all the things which were venerated and, and, and worshipped from the Old Testament were replicas of the real one. Jesus Christ shed his blood not on the altar in Jerusalem, at the altar in heaven. And there is an altar in heaven. So that's what's alluded to here. And bear in mind at this moment in this text here, we are, um, we are still in heaven, not on earth, not yet. But anyways, we had the golden altar, which is associated again with the prayers of the saints. Then verse 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So again, that idiom is frequently used in scripture. We've run into it before, discussed it. We have in our view the prayers of the saints. And so, these prayers. Prayers that seem to apply here, which are being risen, I believe, are the prayers that Adam and Noah and Abraham and David and Paul prayed. It's what Jesus taught the disciples to pray, and that's namely a phrase, a phrase that we use often. In the Lord's Prayer, we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right? So this highlights the real purpose of prayer, which is not to get or accomplish man's will in heaven, right? Rather to get God's will and accomplished here on earth. And so prayer is the Lord's way of enlisting you and I into what he is doing. But thy kingdom come, what does that even mean? Or what does that really mean? The book of Revelation is bringing that to a climax, God is establishing his kingdom in the place of Satan's, who is the usurper and uh, who Scripture calls the God of this age. And that's what we're going to see start unfolding now. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So verse five. Now, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes and light of lightning and an earthquake. Okay. So, 
as we go through this now, the idea of the censer kind of harkens back. It's analogous of Isaiah 6. That is something you want to be familiar with for background in Revelation. It's a very unique passage. If you recall the vision Isaiah has in Isaiah 6, it's of the throne of God. And there, there was hot coals used to purge the sinfulness of Isaiah. And he confesses. Now, if you didn't know this, uh, John, in the New Testament, later, chapter 12 of his gospel in verse 41, he identifies the one in that scene from chapter 6 of Isaiah as Jesus Christ. We read it in Isaiah as him seeing the throne of God, but John 12, 41 tells us that the one whom he saw was none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's another theophany, if you will. But, um, by the way, like I said, the Chapter 6 of Isaiah is a unique passage. If you haven't studied the Trinity and you want to be edified in that, uh, Isaiah 6 is uh, very edifying. It might be helpful and illuminating. And They even say, holy, 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 three times in there. Um, and so I encourage you to, to consider that. Now, verses 6 and 7, we see these seven angels, all right? So the seven angels who have the seven trumpets prepared to blow... The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Wild stuff, can you imagine? All the green grass, a third of the trees. Um... These trumpet judgments, we're going to find by the time we get to the bowl judgments, we're going to realize that these trumpet judgments seem to parallel the bowls, and they are about a third, which you see a lot of thirds here in these judgments. So very similar in their design. That becomes pretty conspicuous. But um, first of all, we have this hail here. Hail, you're probably familiar if you're a student of the Bible, that is used often in the Old Testament and Scripture of judgment. You find it in Isaiah, in Job, and uh, so forth. Now, these judgments also have not a, a... There are parallels of the plagues in Egypt. I don't know if anybody's minds went there, but there's a lot of similarities there. You may recall Exodus 7, 8, 9. That's where the ten plagues... Uh, are brought upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. God uses these plagues to free the nation of Israel from their bondage. The Egyptian plagues are not parallel to this structure, a very specific structure in Revelation, but you'll find that the trumpet judgments, many of them are similar. And that kind of raises a, a basic issue. When you study Revelation and you go through commentaries and notes and, and ideas and thoughts, um, there's a lot of... Uh, um, presentation, pondering these judgments. Are they literal or are they figurative? So, uh, let me just touch on that for a moment. There are ways to view these judgments in, in Revelation as idiomatic or in, 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 uh, in doing so without denying the literalness of the Bible because we do find various words intentionally used idiomatically. Fire, for instance, is, is easy. It's Use of God's judgment over and over and again, and, and that is clearly expressed as, a, as an idiom and uh, still taking the Bible very seriously. So, now I am not talking about allegorizing the text, that is something different I'm not going into, but there is an issue here. I believe these are literal, but you could say in, tr in the Bible that trees, like in the verse here, a third of the trees, they're also used to talk about prominent individuals and their authority, right, such as uh, visions from Daniel and elsewhere. So, like I said, I tend to believe these are literal. But why? Well, I believe that because I believe the plagues in Egypt were literal. Um, when it said the water was turned to blood, I believe that the water turned to blood. We're going to see that happen here in Revelation. So, here we have hail and fire mingled with blood. This is Similar to the seventh plague in Egypt, it's also the same thing described in Joel chapter 2, which is good, um, 
good to be familiar with for, for your Revelation study. Now, the word tree here in the Greek is dendron. It's referring to a fruit tree. So I believe with a third of the trees that's taken out and all of the green grass, I think the idea is all sustenance from the earth. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, you're going to find that a lot of people, when it comes to dealing with these literally or figuratively, a lot of teachers expressly believe that it's both. And um, so it's on one hand, it's probably literal, and on the other hand, it may be broader in scope than just looking, examining the language, what it means denotatively. I think, I think that could be valid. I'm not smart enough, definitely, to build a case um, for or against uh, either way. I just want to advise you of that as you examine and study this book. There's a, there's a lot of information out there, so um, be cautious. All right, verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain or something as it were. That's a kind of a phrase that implies it's uh, symbolic, right? Something, it's not literally, it says something like or as it were a great mountain. So you see how it could be both, the, uh, the interpretation there. So a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. This is similar to the first Egyptian plague in Exodus 7. It's also mentioned in Psalm 105. In the mountain burning with fire cast into the sea is also mentioned as an idiom in Jeremiah 51. Now this third of the sea becoming blood, if you didn't know, uh, three quarters of the world's surface is ocean. Um, one third of that ocean is the Atlantic, which we're familiar with. So I'm not making a suggestion, I'm just trying to give you a little context of the, the sea, one third of it becoming blood. It's a lot of water. A lot of blood water. All right, verse 9 now. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So it's this kind of amplification that it leads me to take these things literally. Um, if you do a quick Google search, you'll find that there are, at any given time, at least 50,000 merchant ships crossing the ocean at any given time. So if you hit a third of those, we're talking about over 16,500 ships. Um, you find this similar description of judgment in Hosea chapter 4, Zephaniah 1, Isaiah 2, and um, similar remarks describing these judgments. All right, now verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Again, very descriptive of um, Egyptian plague in Exodus where the waters were made bitter. On one hand, it's clearly literal. On the other hand, you find uh, reasoning uh, where scholars have a different view because there could be figurative application here. In John 4, Jesus speaks of rivers and water as a source of life. He's clearly using it idiomatically there. So Jeremiah 9 and 23, those chapters use similar phrases. All right, now verse 11. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters become Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now the Greek word for bitter here, is what we get the word absinthe from, and it generally means undrinkable or, or you, that you can't drink uh, without harm. In the Old Testament, the term is uh, frequently used um, to imply sorrow, calamity, and, and, and bitterness, and hemlock. Now, it's kind of interesting. You would find the same terms again in Jeremiah 9 and chapter 23, but also Lamentations 3 and Amos 5 and other places Again, you can take a concordance and track all this down. It's super edifying, very enlightening to... Uh, I mean, Revelation is such a good book to do that, uh, to use that technique with. Um, so, and if you would like notes on, on all the scripture I have that goes with it, um, I'd be glad to give you what I have. So the figurative application can be justified, again, by, uh, by people who... They know the Bible more than I do, and they're smarter than I. So I, I'm not quarreling with that. But on one hand, I think, 
verses 10 and 11 here, this is a very real possibility. It's uh, talking about a literal event. Um, you might find it interesting uh, or provocative even to know what the Russian word for wormwood is. Chernobyl. Um, yeah, I don't know what you would do with that imp- information. <laughs> um, but it is fascinating. So, by the way, uh, when it says um, a third of the waters became bitter, Google, or Google, as I like to call it, says there's a 165-ish principal rivers. Um, these are principal, big waterways. 165, 30 of those or so are in the United States. So it would seem, if you take this literally, and, and I do, um, that there's going to be some kind of cataclysmic event that would render a third of the water on the planet dangerous. And keep in mind, it's, a third of it's going to be blood, too. So this is going to, of course, wreak havoc on the planet and um, scary stuff. Don't want to be here. All right, I didn't think I'd get this far, so thanks for staying, sticking with me. I have, I have more, so we should finish the, the chapter, hopefully, tonight. Verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trump, trumpet, and the third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. This is Again, analogous to the ninth plague in Egypt, where in uh, Exodus 10, that incidentally lasted three days, darkness, obscuring earth, and so forth. We're going to see a similar kind of thing occur in Revelation 16, so we'll we'll take it on again then. But Jesus mentions this in um, Matthew 24 and Luke 21. These are analogous renderings of the confidential briefing Uh, Jesus gave his disciples when they asked him about his second coming, Matthew 24 and Luke 21. So the Luke passage, I think, is interesting to look at. In Luke chapter 21, verse 25, uh, I have about four verses I want to read. In verse 25, it says, this is Jesus speaking about his second coming, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. Before uh, we go on, it's kind of interesting that um, when you read this, you, you can treat these as uh, idioms or metaphors, if you'd like. But you kind of get the impression there's not, uh, it's n- not really necessary. It seems straightforward what he's saying is that there are signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. That's straightforward enough. And keep in mind, this is an assertive statement by the Lord. We're not talking about a dream or a vision here. When you see dreams and visions, um, the idioms used or included there are typically traditional symbols. But here we have a straightforward, upon the earth there will be distress of nations with perplexity. Yeah, I I bet. When these things start happening, I can imagine people are going to get upset. And um, because of the roaring waves of the sea, it says. Verse 26, this is interesting. When... Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, look up for your redemption draws nigh. Now he's talking about the whole briefing package here, but I want to go to verse 26. That's always interesting to me. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. I don't know if anybody already has an opinion on that verse, but um, I I know some people which kind of makes me think of them when I read this, that many people see this as a gesture or a reference to UFOs or or UAPs as as they're referred to now. Um, I think that's very strange. I don't know anything about it, but... um, this verse is peculiar also because it says the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And uh, what's interesting to me about that is the Greek language and what makes up the, uh, the words here. The Greek word here used for heavens is oronos. 
And oronos is the Greek word from which we get two of our familiar words from. Does anybody know? The first one is Uranus, which is the seventh planet from the sun. Uh, but also, uh, oronos means the word uranium. So, again, that could be relevant or have nothing to do with anything. It's just, I think, amusing background on the, um, the text. The word for powers is dudamas, which is the, the, the same word we get uh, dynamite from. And uh, the word shaken is actually saleo, or a, a derivative of that, which means to set off balance. And so that understanding there, in, in some commentaries, you'll find that uh, a lot of people believe the Lord is dealing um, kind of in, in puns here. It wouldn't surprise me if that's the case, because the Holy Spirit... Um, frequently deals with um, deals in puns of various kinds in the scripture. So these dramatic events that are occurring here are referred to in several places in the Old Testament. Um, and similar predictions are made in Isaiah chapter 30, uh, Joel chapter 2, like I said, and also uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Okay, um, I'm going to go ahead and stop there because the final verse is actually kind of like the, you know, the grand finale. You know? <laughs> um, it would take us over, and I, and, and I, I don't want to do that. Uh, but we have a minute, and I realize, and I wanted to say this earlier. I, I, again, I appreciate your, your patience. I'm still growing as a teacher, and, I, and I, uh, I certainly have an appetite for learning what the Lord has for us and, and bringing that forth. And so I, I certainly uh, am blessed... Um, and I, I recognize that opportunity. And I know my style is different from Pastor Conrad's, and so there's many things that may have just totally not made sense. But if you have questions, I, I really enjoy speaking about this, these topics, and um, I'd love to entertain any thought or questions that you may have. Um, but again, I appreciate your patience and your tolerance of, of my uh, fumbling around up here. Um, does anyone have a question, though, before we would...